If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you're into sports betting and you're not spending your time at Bet Online, then I don't even understand what you're doing. Whether it's live bets during games or futures or who you think will win the championship, Bet Online has all the latest odds, news, and information for all your online sports betting needs. Visit the website today or use your mobile device to join and listen to this. You will receive 50% off. As a welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's 5-0, baby. So, before the next big game, head over to Bet Online and start playing today. Bet Online, your online sports book experts. This episode also sponsored by Blue Chew. Blue Chew is something that's amazing. We all understand that uh, lack of performance in the bedroom. It's an embarrassing thing to deal with right out of the gate. So the last thing you want to do is go to a doctor's office or then have to deal with the pharmacy. Blue Chew is bringing you all the active ingredients from Cialis and Viagra right to your door, all online in a prescription service. So there's no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, no waiting in line at the pharmacy. It's all taken care of. It's very simple. You sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. Best part, all done online. Head to BlueChew.com for more details and important information. Also, I've got a special deal for you. Try BlueChew for free. When you use the promo code Mikey, M-I-K-E-Y, at checkout, just pay $5 for shipping and everything else is free. That's M-I-K-E-Y at checkout at BlueChew.com. Thank you so much for BlueChew sponsoring this podcast. Oh, yeah. Hey, babies, my babies. It is Mikey Likes You, a very special episode, and I actually mean that. It's my first road episode. I went out to Austin, Texas and uh, set up at Onnit, at the Onnit Academy in Austin. And my man, Kyle Kingsbury, sat down with me. And it was such a pleasure. And it was really nice of him to let me do that. Um, he, he really pulled a lot of strings, and he had a very busy schedule. They were right on the cusp of starting um, their fit-for-service program, he and Aubrey. And um, he, you know, he took the time out of his day to meet me at the Onnit Academy and to do this podcast. And Kyle is a fascinating dude. Um, at Kingsboo, K-I-N-G-S-B-U dot com. Uh, that's where you can find out anything about the man. But he's a former UFC fighter. He fought in King of the Cage. He was a, a professional MMA fighter and a good one at that. Uh, he played college football. And now he is one of the um, fitness directors at Onnit. And 
he's the director of human optimization. And that's actually one of the things that I like about Kyle is that he takes into consideration not only the physical, but the emotional, spiritual, and mental as well. And if you know anything about this podcast or myself, you know that that is kind of what I'm going for um, when it comes to me getting my shit together. And that's the basis for me even doing this podcast is realizing that there's so much integration between you know your daily habits and your behavior and uh, the way you feel about yourself physically, mentally, and emotionally. It all comes together in this nice little spiritual nugget. So I, I highly encourage you to take the time listen to this podcast with my man, Kyle Kingsbury. Dude, Kyle, first off, this is my first Mikey Likes You road gig. So I have to say thank you for allowing me to do this. Uh, and secondly, thank you for, for hosting me, you know, now that I'm out here in Austin, for you to take time out of your day to bring me here to On It and just allow me to sit down with you. It, me- it means a lot, man. I really, really deeply appreciate it. Fuck yeah, brother. Absolutely. I'm pumped. Uh, I am too. I am too. There's so much to talk to you about. And, you know, when I envisioned doing this podcast... I had this idealized view of what it could be. I always thought, you know, there's there's truly thousands, thousands of fitness podcasts of sets and reps and training modalities and eat this, don't eat that. I wanted to make it something more that really reflected the the growth that I've had as a human um, through the prism of strenuous exercise and, and learning how to take care of my body with nutrition and, and, and all the kind of latent benefits that came from it. And you, you know, you and your, your partners in, in Eric and, and Aubrey, um, really represent like the, 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 the epitome of what it means to be a developed man using exercise nutrition just as a facet of self-development. Was that always kind of because you've been an athletic person your whole life? I mean, at an extremely high level, higher than most, you know, ninety nine percent of the people who have ever walked this earth to play college level football, um, it, you know, at a, at a Division one school, and then to compete in the UFC. We're talking, you know, point oh one percent probably. Have you always been the guy who always saw the? other kind of comprehensive aspects to physical exercise or was it something that you developed later on through, you know, kind of maybe accidental, um, uh, arrival at these things, you know, you were, you were a meathead at point A and then by point B (laughs) and C you developed the idea of growing into a whole man. Yeah. It's, it's, um, everything came in stages and layers, you know, and I think that's, that's a natural progression, when I, I mean, I started playing football when I was 10 and then around 13 or 14, um, muscle tech came out with creatine 6,000 ES. Oh yeah. And I was like, I, you know, I'm reading all the muscle mags and that kind of shit. I, that was the first supplement that I took that worked really well for strength and a little bit of size, mostly water weight, but knowing that I could take something to alter my performance, I was like, Oh wow. Okay. There's, that was like, there was like a, a first little, like a layer boost of, of potential there. And then started diving into supplements super early on. Just, I remember when Bill Phillips made a supplement review, which is, of course he owned 
Muscle or Muscle Media, Muscle, Muscle Media 2000, yeah. and he owned uh, EAS. So yeah. you know, no conflict of interest there. But <laughs> but um, you know, I'm, I remember researching and diving into that and experimenting and seeing what worked and what didn't. And that was a you know my first inclination in that nutrition and supplements had a profound impact on performance. It wasn't until because in, in football I had to gain weight. You know, I was always undersized as a defensive lineman, mm. too slow to play linebacker. And uh, so I just, I figured it'd be easier to eat a lot, gain the muscle, gain the size. I love strength training. And, uh, you know, I did it by any means necessary. I was on, you know, the, the, the Latimer program when I was in college, Yeah, just juice to the gills, eating McDonald's three days a week for breakfast with every protein shake, farting like crazy. Some nights I'd eat, you know, two frozen pizzas and then drive drive down the street to Krispy Kreme for a dozen donuts and Fantastic. a pint of cream, you know, like just literally, it was like more, more, you know, felt Michael Phelps, when he talked about his 10,000 calories a day, it was like, yeah, that was, that was breakfast for that me. Was, <laughs> that was year round. And that was, that was at least that. Right. So, and I, and, you know, I hate to interrupt, but I, I think that it's, it's really unfortunate because, you know, so many young guys, especially they look at putting on muscle as that's what I have to do. And, you know, it probably worked for a defensive lineman who's undersized and it's like, I need to get to this weight period. It doesn't really matter how I look or what my health is. But in reality, that's really not a, probably a good way to go about it. No, 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 not at all. That's, that's an unsustainable practice yeah. for sure. Just to put it plainly, unsustainable. Um, so, you know, that, that's where it progressed. And then when I got into fighting, I had a strength coach who had healed his cancer and... Um, you know, it's taken all of Paul Check's work, you know, and he introduced me to, I think, flatten your abs forever. And I was like, cool, man, six pack abs. And it was all on gut health. Yeah. You know, and he thought I, he correctly intuited that I had some type of intolerance. So we did Check's elimination and sure enough, dairy and gluten came up and gluten was the big one, you know, and most people are like, oh yeah, fucking gluten, this and that, that kind of shit. And it's like, well, individually, we all have our ability to, to break down certain things. Genetics plays a role in this. Um, how many pharmaceuticals you've had throughout the course of your life plays a role in this. And for me, eliminating those two things lowered inflammation to the point where like all, it turned the volume down on all my old injuries, <coughs> which were pretty extensive at that point, having played football since I was 10, finishing at Arizona State and getting into fighting. The wrestling, you know, plays a yeah. big role too. I mean, that's Big time, a, man. Big, especially with the shoulders. Yeah. And, um, the thing that I noticed above the pain in my body starting to melt away was that I could think more clearly. I could retain information better. And that's when I realized what I put in my body has a profound impact on every possible way that I experience life, from how I think to how I feel to how I operate. And, uh, you know, I give, I give Paul Check so much credit on my podcast. He's been on my show more than any other guest will continue to be the case. I'm just going to fucking milk him, you know, until yeah. he dies, you know. And uh, super close friend and mentor, but that that was the next big turning point for me, you know, in, in really understanding that what fighting did for me is it gave me an impetus. You know, it was the the fire lit under my ass to learn more because I didn't have Daniel Cormier's wrestling background or Kane's cardio or any. You know, th yeah. these are my teammates. These are guys that I'm going with on a daily basis at American Kickboxing Academy. Some of the best in the world. Some of the best of all time. And I didn't quite have those skill sets. So 
I wanted to learn as much as possible about recovery, mobility. You know, I dove into Kelly Sturette's work and it was, it was one of those things where it was kind of like the more I got at it, the more I got out of it. And then it was like, I couldn't stop that momentum. Yeah. And when I finished fighting, um, I still couldn't stop that momentum, but thankfully, you know, I had a, I had a, a Native American boxing coach who took me to the sweat lodge and started working with plant medicines. And that was kind of this bigger piece that started to unfold uh, a greater connection spiritually and a greater understanding of, of the game that is life. And it allowed me to transition from fighting fairly easily. You know, uh, I still watch fights and I'm still pumped when I see the, the old teammates going or anybody. I'm still a huge fan of the sport. And there's still an itch to let out the inner wild man. Sure. But I know that, that you know, as I've continued to learn these things, I can apply them in my life. And, and that has, again, this, this wonderful feedback loop of positivity in that I'm able to retain more, I'm able to regurgitate more, which is important as a podcast host, but most importantly, my experience of life is greatly improved from everything that I continue to digest and process from reading and the guests that I have. Yeah, and and that's a really good message. And for me, one of the biggest things that I struggled with, and it took me a long time to kind of recognize it, not only with working out, but in life, was the idea of, like you said, growing, changing, adapting, but then also being able to analyze the data and then further, you know, further go and further be able to adapt and change and alter and, and augment my behavior and my, my mood to what I've seen from my past behavior. It was, it was almost as if like I had found so much value at being a type A kind of go, go, go guy. You know, I, I, I'm very similar to you in that I, I was nowhere near as talented at sports. But one thing, I never was particularly gifted in anything. But one thing I always hung my hat on was work ethic. I, I will show up early and I will stay late if you need me to. And it didn't matter if I was, you know, when I was a janitor or if, you know, I was hosting a syndicated radio show. I, I, I prided myself on the fact that like, well, I'm not going to leave anything on the table that I knew I could control. But one thing I was leaving out was, well, I never went back and listened to a show or I never really took the time or the, had the courage to like analyze my performance and then change it to, to, to be better. I just kind of rested on, well, I did. I showed up and I worked hard and I researched for that guest and I inter- interviewed that guest. I never had the courage to kind of look in the mirror and be like, was it any good? <laughs> it, took me, it took me a long time to do that. I mean, was that something that you innately had or was that kind of a struggle as well? The, <coughs> the self-review is a funny one. <clears throat> I'm watching right now, Bear, my son, my oldest uh, child is uh, six years old and uh, I'm just now watching my fights for the first time on Fight Pass. Wow. I've never seen one of my fights. I've seen clips on Instagram and things like that, but I've never watched a full fight. The first one, actually the only one we've watched so far is my, my first fight of the night with Jared Hammond. And it's funny because, you know, he was talking about, kind of a side note, but he, Bear was talking to me about like, oh, I want to I wanna do the UFC. And I was like, uh, let's wait until <laughs> we win this lawsuit, buddy. It's not really all it's cracked up to be. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want you signing your life away. And, uh, you know, just little jokes like that that are way over his head. And... um. Anyways, he watched it and he was like, fighting's stupid. 
And I was like, whoa, that really? That's what you took away from that? I mean, daddy won. It was awesome. Yeah. You know? And he's like, all you guys did was punch each other in the face and nobody won. And I was like, no, I, I mean, they, they raised my hand. It's called a decision victory, you know? Like, they, I had more points than the guy. And he's like, no, you just punched each other until you were ble- bloody. No one knocked each other out. No one submitted each other. And I was like, oh, you didn't like it because it was a decision. And, but it, it, I was like, fighting oftentimes is that, you know? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to do that. And I was like, all right, cool. That's good enough. Well, you have video but, clips of a, of a first-round TKO, like a quick one. You could just show him that and be like, yeah, see? Be, well, that this might is make fun. Him, that might make him want to do it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to stand in his way if he wants to, but um, certainly, you know, I mean, as a parent, you know, you don't want to see your kids get his, their heads bashed in. And I've been the hammer just as much as I've been the nail. Mm-hmm. So that's a factor. But I, I know I went off course there. We were... The self-analysis stuff, but self, yeah, self-reflection, you know, honestly, the, the greatest self-reflection piece that I've ever had. And I mean, without question, it's been ayahuasca and psilocybin. Mm -hmm. There's no, there's no doubt about it because ultimately whatever's behind the curtain is going to show up, you know, and and for a lot of people, that's the hardest part is saying like, I don't want to surrender control of Mm -hmm. that. I like being able to focus my mind where I want it to focus and, and the stuff that I don't want to look at, I want to keep that in the closet and not look at it. Uh, those tools, you know, either either gently or harshly have allowed me to, to have like the greatest look at what's going on inside, what's making me tick, how am I responding as a parent, how am I responding as a partner and a husband. And, um, you know, to put it plainly, there's nothing like it. There really isn't, you know, and, and, and for a long time, I was beating the drum of, holy shit, I can't believe this exists. Everybody and their mom needs to do this, you know, right. and then over time, especially over the last few, it's like, and, and it's not for everyone and that's okay. You know, uh, and I don't mean that as like, I'm the decider of that or somebody should be deciding that for sure. The government should not be deciding that. And for sure, I'm not going to be deciding that. But if you're called to it, um, that it, it's the most profound thing that I've ever done. And so self-reflection came from that. And, and believe it or not, ayahuasca was the one that told me to start a practice with yoga and to start a meditation practice. And I had that message enough times to where I actually started to listen to it. And thankfully I've been guided. I mean, I've tried just like many things. I've tried all different forms of mindfulness and biohacking it and looking at, you know, uh, you know, active feedback on, you know, what, which brainwave state you're in and all this other shit and, and all the gadgets and gizmos are cool. But, uh, working with Emily Fletcher who teaches a Vedic form similar to TM Ziva, right? Ziva, Ziva man, she is incredible. Like that, that changed the game for me. You know I what? had been a, I had been an avid meditator and, um, had been just pushing people, uh, both in my personal life and then through the podcast, you got to meditate, meditate. When I discovered Emily Fletcher, it, it all, I was like, you got to meditate and you got to do Ziva. Trust yeah. me, because it, it is so much more reasonable and, it, and it's accessible, you know, to, to, the, to the real people of the world. If you're not a monk that sleeps under a tree, um, this, this can make sense to you. Yeah, yeah. She talked about that a bit, quite a bit on the podcast about how it was designed 6,000 years ago for the householders. Mm-hmm. That was the term they gave common folks who had kids and a day job. Right. And so like all these other forms, a lot of the other, and it's funny cause like, you know, yogis will say, don't do psychedelics. That's a fucking, that's, there's, there's no shortcuts, you know, in spirituality and, 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 uh, just get there through meditation and, and asceticism. And I, obviously that there's, there's many paths up the mountain, but at that time they were saying, don't use the mantra. 
that's a cheat code. Yeah. Don't focus on this. You have to do a different type of meditation. And, you know, one that was really only accessible and valuable to the person who has no other shit going on in their life, who's completely devoted themselves to solitude, silence, and being in a practice where they're completely cared for. You know, like these, the monks are, are they're in a different world within this world. Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Householders are in a different world that's within this world. And anyone who has kids knows that because they recognize it in their friends who still don't have kids. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's like you, you see your friends who still don't have kids and you're like, oh, you don't get it. Yeah. You don't get it because you don't have kids. And I didn't get it either. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, there's no judgment there, but you just, you don't, you can't understand it. You can understand it, a glimpse of it. Right. And, and I mean that from every facet of that. And that, and that's, again, there's no judgment there, but it's one of those things where it's, it's just a whole different world that we're in as householders. Yeah. And so what Emily's providing is a way to have a disciplined practice for 20 minutes, twice a day that doesn't get you good at meditation, but makes you better at life. Right. You know, and, and it, and there's no failing in it. Right. Like one of the things she said that was brilliant was the mind's job is to think whoever told, whoever lied to the world and said that meditation is about stopping the mind from thinking did a great disservice because it'd, it'd be akin to saying, I'm going to slow my resting heart rate down to zero. No, dude, like that happens when you die. Yeah. And that's the only time that it happens is when you die. Good, good luck with that. Yeah. I can help by the way. <laughs> you're not, not going to slow the mind down to zero either. Right. So yeah. just get used to it being there. Thank it for its presence and return back to center. And the better we get at that, the better we get at life because we realize that you're not, you're no longer a prisoner to your thoughts. And, um, that's a big one. I mean, imagine if you're at a train station and every train that rode by, you had to get on the train. Yeah. Fuck, you'd be all over the place. Or stand on the train tracks and try to stop it from moving, you know, it's just, which is <laughs> yeah. what we try to do with thoughts a lot yeah, too, you know, exactly. like, I'm either going to attach myself to everyone that goes by or I'm going to jump in and try to, I can't think right now. I got to clear my mind. It's like, well, no, that's not how, you know, it's more like clouds in the sky. You just got to let, recognize that they're there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. So she, she's, you know, each of these things I, 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 I talked to Emily about how valuable Ziva meditation is, her form of meditation. I value it as high as I value ayahuasca, you know, and, and that, that, that says something. Yeah. You know, like there's, there's no doubt how important that's been in my life. And, um, so, I mean, I've been gifted each of these tools along the way at the appropriate time and, um, and it's made a lot of difference and still here we are in a world that is just fucking crumbling before us. And it's like, all right, let me just control what I can control and, and remain in my center and not be frazzled by the external as best I can and yeah. then get frazzled and then unfrazzle it and return and just keep, keep that going so that I can remain sane in, in what appears to be pretty insane times. It really does. And you know, I, I, I always fancied myself like a caring, considerate person. And I realized the best thing I can do is just make sure I'm doing the best that I'm doing instead of trying to, you know, much like with thinking, like attach myself to everyone's suffering because everyone is suffering to some extent, you know, some more so than others. And uh, I can't be of assistance to anyone if I allow myself to, to just 
allow my suffering to run roughshod. The best thing I can do if I really wanted to be a giver to this world is to just take care of myself as best I can. And, and, um, I, I, I really worry not so much about the things that are evident to our chaotic crumbling world. I worry more so about the fact that we're not even in my opinion, focusing on the biggest reasons why we're suffering the other day, I got into a very civil uh, argument conversation with a friend of mine who is very anti-gun, and I am pro-gun. I'm not pro-gun violence, but I, you know, I, I'm a big kind of libertarian. Hey, man, if I want to buy a million guns, I should be able to. This is America. Blah blah blah. And I was explaining to him like my take on things, and he was explaining his take on things. And he said, "Look, look at the numbers of gun deaths in this country." And I go, all right. And he's like, compare it to any other developed country. And I was like, all right, yeah, man. And he shows me the number. I'm like, wow, fuck. That is a lot of gun death. Okay. You have a val- valid point. It's a lot of gun death. We end the conversation. A couple hours go by, and I'm tooling around on the internet. And I look, and I see, well, yeah, 68 point something percent of those gun deaths are suicide. So while we're taking this time to argue about the value of guns and gun control is like, no, 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 no. What we need to focus on is that so many people in this country are so desperate that they thought it was a good idea to put a gun in their mouth and pull the trigger. That's the root of all of this, whether it's the woke versus the, the, the QAnon versus the Republican versus Democrat. It, that, all of that is coming from this really, really ugly bowl of suffering. Man, we have a real serious mental health problem. And it's not, it's not the drugs, it's not the guns, it's not the race. It's, a, it's all coming from the fact that we're, 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 we're a sad, depressed group of people. 300 million of us are, you know, there's that much suffering. And it really worries me that we're never going to have the, I don't know if it's like an intellectual wherewithal or if it's just a, a flat out, courage to just stop and say that, you know, and really take it into consideration that we need to value our mental health a little bit more and not how much money's in our bank account, not, you know, the color of our skin, whatever it may be. You know, I I really genuinely worry about that, that the time's just going to go on where we keep picking out these little small ancillary details for us to argue about when really the nucleus is that we're all just sad. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot of joy in living our lives. Yeah. What the the purpose, right? Some yeah. of these some of these bigger questions we bring to the table with plant medicines or just in life in general. Why am I here? What is the point of all this? Yeah, I, I this, most of these are unanswerable, but you they're know, absolutely the, unanswerable. We, we but at get, least we try to get locked into the things. Have you read the book Finite and Infinite Games by James P. Cars? I haven't, but I'm aware of it. Yeah, it's brilliant, dude. But he I mean, he talks about the difference between these, and to use that uh, lexicon. Rather than getting to the crux of our infinite problem that we're in right now, you know, within the infinite game is our own mental health, our own why we're here, our own what is the service we bring to the world? You know, is it is it making coffee for people? Is it driving somebody around in my car? Like those are that's all fine. But what is the greater purpose behind that behind being here without a collective idea? Check talked about this on a solo cast he did on tribe which is brilliant, mm-hmm. but all tribes share a collective myth and they live that myth. 
they live that, and you could you could say well, morals. Well, morals fit into that. You know, you think of stoicism. That fits into the collective myth. If we don't have a collective myth here, literally, what are we doing? Right. You know, and so that that's that's a part of that infinite game, and so instead, what we do is we find the finite games to try to win. The finite game has a winner and loser. So I'm going to be right about masks. You're going to be wrong. Right. On either fucking side, you're playing the same exact game, right? I'm going to be right about the shot, or you're, and you're going to be wrong. And it's on either side. Well, look what happened now. The Delta variant's out. Oh, well, look what happened now. This isn't going to work for Delta variant. Or look what, you know, and it's just one simple finite game after another, rather than returning back to that central piece of why am I here and what am I doing within the world that is creating progress. Yeah, I talked with Jamie Wheel about this. I had a really hard go of it with um, the Sonoran Desert Toad, 5-MeO-DMT. And, and uh, he and, you know, of course, Paul Check did, did such a great job with me on that. But he had a big one. And he said, if you ever feel like you're in Groundhog Day, seek novelty, create art, and help others do the same. And art is literally everything. It's, yeah. not, it's not the what you do. It's how you do it, right? It's, so, it's, it separates us from every other animal on the planet. And what I mean by that is like, there's, you know, first off, humans are the best. I'm sorry. I'm a big animal <laughs> rights guy, but let, let's not kid ourselves. Fucking humans are way better than any other animal when what we can accomplish. But one of the things that separates us is, is that we make stuff specifically to be observed. Animals create things. They have very great knowledge to function and the use of tools and whatever it may be and building dams. and But animals don't make things just to appreciate them and humans do that and art is really it, it is kind of like at the essence of what our spirit's about you know you know the, the idea of just i'm gonna make something not because it it's a tool not because it helps me dig a deeper hole or build a bigger building i'm gonna make something because it makes the way i feel and think change that's it you know and that's such a beautiful idea he had a celebrate. I think uh, Rumi talked about that. Um, I can't even. I can't even butcher this poem because I don't have it in my head to butcher. But he compares, you know, the true essence of beauty as God itself. Yeah. Right. And and it's the appreciation of that when we connect to something beautiful, we are witnessing the divine. Um, and that's not how he words it at all. So if you try to look up any of that shit, sorry, it's not going to lead you anywhere. Um, but my point is, I think that is the point behind art. And I think that is the point in service. And and the art can be how we communicate to one person, like our children. It could be the art of how we communicate in a podcast. It could be the art of our martial arts in a cage. It can be a painting. It can be a song. It can be how you interact with a cashier at the checkout line who's mm-hmm. got a hundred people there. You know, it could be anything. That can be your art. And and that's something that's that's overlooked. Like, is this, is this done artfully or is this done reactively? And, um, there is so much something we could, we should all agree on is that there is so much beyond our control right now and painfully obvious, you know, yeah. that, that the, the serenity prayer really is that gift out. It's a doorway out. Like allow me to control the things that I can and to let go of the things that I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference, right? right. Also butchered that prayer. But, no, no, you're but, spot but that, on. That's, that's, <laughs> that's it, right? Like, yeah. so, so in a sense, 
uh, you know, and we talk about this a lot, working with Godzi and Aubrey in, in Fit for Service, the fit for portion is you serving yourself. How do you become fit to serve humanity or fit to serve the world, Gaia, whatever you want to call this? You do that by filling your own cup first. And so paradoxically, the person who only has self-interest in mind and the person who has service to the all in mind have are sharing something in common. Right. They have to serve themselves first if they want to even be in a place to serve the all. When you're the martyr or the person who gives at the expense of self, that's unsustainable and won't last. Yeah. Right? And I think that's where fitness, diet, lifestyle choices, how when did you go to bed? What type of you know, it's kind of hard not to digest shitty media right now, whether that's social media, the news, or, you know, even the, the, um, the stuff that's banned, you know, or it's like more conspiracy theory stuff that I, I chew on all the time. I have to know when to have that. I can't digest that right before bed. I'm not going to eat a fucking big ass meal before bed. I'm certainly not going to have a cheat meal right before bed. Right. So if I'm going to eat something that's a little hard to digest, I got to do that during the day. Sure. You know, so I'll do that on a walk. I'll watch a video on a walk. And I'll let that move through me. So when I go to sleep at night, I can actually fall asleep. But all of these things are within my control. All of those little decisions that I make so that I don't take that fear of the external and bring it to my family. I don't bring it home with me. I don't let that guide me. That's not the thing that's steering the wheel right now. Yeah. And I think if we return to that, we can see more clearly and effectively in creating the world that we want. It's, it's really weird. Dr. Drew always used the analogy, and I don't know if he came up with it on his own or if it was something that he heard from his time in, in the world of recovery, but you know, he's usually speaking directly about addiction, but it, it applies to everything. He's like, you know when you're on a plane and they give you the safety instructions, they always say, put on the gas, the, the air mask on yourself first. Even if you have kids, you're, you're, you're of course like, make sure you... You got to, because there's a a real small window before you fucking pass out, make sure everyone apply your mask to yourself first so that you're capable of then going around and applying it to the senior citizens or the children who are incapable of doing it. And uh, he's like, that's the way you got to look at it. You may say like, I can't take 28 days out of my life. Uh, I have a job and kids to support. I have to be around my family. I can't go to a rehab center to take care of this addiction. I have to figure out. And it's like, hmm. You're not really able to go to that job or take care of your kids if you continue smoking crack every day or drink, you know, drinking for breakfast. And that's, you know, I, I always have thought about that, but it's really, really hard. I think, especially for dudes, because traditionally, right or wrong, especially in America, we value each other so much more about our achievements and our status than we do about like what's the integrity and the character behind. behind the skin and uh, it's so hard i mean i i I will be fully honest it's so hard for me sometimes to really say like well i cannot sleep tonight and then go and work a double shift and pick up and go on the air then do this tv show even though i'm not that into it but it's it's exposure and it'll give me money and i'll have money and i can buy things and say that becomes so much more important often than you know it's like well Maybe spend more time with your kid and your wife and actually listen to your wife when she's talking. And the, all of that, you know, that doesn't look cool to my male friends. You know, when I go and I meet with my buddies, it's like I really am, you know, it's sad to say, but I'm, I'm really much more pumped on promoting how successful I've been 
as opposed to how much my wife trusts me or my daughter looks up to me, you know? Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough. You know, I, I'm sure there's, there, there's obviously value to like the idea of old school ambition and just go for it and become something, be, be your own man. But it's really hard not to let that overshadow the idea of like working on yourself. Yeah. And you can take that ambition to the work, the good, the great work, yeah. right? You can take that ambition to different places and, and, and discipline. You know, it's funny. I, I was talking with somebody just the other day about discipline. Have you read the book conversations with God? Yes. Yeah. It's a, fantastic. But in between the audible is a little bit cheesy. Cause you know, it's, 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 it's the author and, and they're, they're, you know, it's, it's, he didn't hear a voice when he had the conversation with God, but how they have the conversation is, is with like a, you know, like a paid actor read yeah. it kind of feel, you know, and it's like, and then God, you know, it, it, they have, they get <laughs> into it, right. They're in character. Um, but in between book one and book two, they interview different people and different people, you know, Ram Dass is there. They interview, um, the author, Neil Donald Walsh and, um, damn it. I think I just lost the threat. They were interviewing him about, uh, oh, yeah, they're interviewing him about discipline. And he said, I hate that word discipline. You know, he's because like, they asked him, how, how, is, how has having these conversations with God changed your life since these books came out? And he said, oh, immensely. And he goes in all the different ways. And they ask him, you know, like, what are the brass tacks ways? And he goes, well, you know, I hate the word discipline. Um, so I, I have a practice for movement, for my body. I do specific exercises. I do specific stretching and yoga. And I do those every day, except for the days that I do not, <laughs> right? And I have a meditation practice where I connect to God and I quiet my mind. And I do that every day, except for the days that I do not. He's not regimented in anything. And what's funny about that is I listen to that and I said, oh, this guy has the most disciplined approach, yeah. right? Because if you think of the, you know, archetypically of what the divine masculine is and what the divine feminine are, the feminine being the listening, the being, the masculine being the doing, mm-hmm. he has balanced those perfectly. He's able to listen to what his body wants that day, and then he does it. And he's not overly strict or structured on how that gets done. That is ultimate discipline, even though he doesn't realize it. So I think taking that into these, into these aspects of how we'd use that ambition to direct our lives for self in the service of all can be, can be the move. And you know, to your point on the being able to talk to friends about what the accomplishments are and yeah. things like that. Tim Ferriss laid that out in the four hour body beautifully when he talked about how much is enough and then how, how do you want to spend the rest of the day? I think he uses the, the story of the, the fisherman out in Southeast Asia who goes out fishing every morning and comes back with his food. And the guy from the West comes and he's like, oh, dude, you should, you should, you're such a great fisherman. You know where all the fish are always like, you should do this to make a ton of money and do all that. You know, you get a loan to get the big boat and then you got to get X amount of fish a day. And then that's going to pay off the boat. And then in 20 years you can retire. And he's like, you know, what are you going to do when you retire? Well, I just go out and fish in the morning and come back to my family. Like <laughs> why, why go through all that bullshit to get there? Right. And so with what you're talking about, it really resonates because the more I have increased my wealth, the more I have wrapped my head around that exact question. And I would, I mean, I, I, I have like a hard out at 3 PM every single day I'm done. And that, that in that window of me actually being at the office or doing anything, that's me time too. So yeah. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to work out 
and I'm going to work all in less than six hours. And quite often, it's a four-hour window that I'm working. All the money in the world isn't going to change that. The ability to make more, if it stretches that and pulls away from my time at home or being in nature with my kids or doing anything, painting, like whatever the fuck it is, I'm not going to let it pull away from that time because you don't get that time back. You know, I, Gary V talked about that. He's like, if, uh, if parenting is a baseball game, everyone's trying to win in the first three innings. Right. You know, you've got the whole game. And it's like, yeah, that's true. But at the same time, the first three innings are pretty fucking important with kids. It's, it, it'd be like if the baseball game was weighted, you know, from, sure. the, from the third trimester to the first seven years, they are fully programmable beings. They're sponges. They soak up way more than the words coming out of your mouth. They soak up how you feel, how you react, how, what is your body language with your partner? All of that's being soaked up. So the first three innings do fucking matter. And I want yeah, to be around it's not, for that. It's, not, it's like know? the opposite of a Thai Muay Thai fight, you know, where they're <laughs> yeah. like the first two rounds, really, it's just guys getting a sense of each other and betting going round. on. Yeah. The third round is the only thing that, you know, that's when Buakau steps it up and starts smashing your face. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, he's found range is yeah. going, it's game time now. <laughs> I, yeah, man, it's, it's really, and I, man, that's a tough pill to swallow, but, um, getting, you know, back to Dr. Drew, he, for a long time, worked at a psychiatric hospital and he was dealing with elderly people who had lost their mental faculties a lot of times. And he would sit there with these men, mostly men who were about to die. And they were all, he said, most of these guys were super high functioning, super high achievers. They were high ranking military, career military, politicians, doctors themselves, um, professional athletes, professional uh, coaches, and especially he's like, NFL coaches, man, they are, they're frayed by the time they get to 60 because it's such an all-consuming job. He's like, and every one of these guys I talked to who had millions of dispensable dollars, who had all the big houses in there, every single one of them, they never cared about that when they were staring death in the eye. They were like, I should have spent more time with my kids. I should have done this. I should have taken more time to, to tour the world. I should, and they all complained, bitched and moaned of, I should have, should have, should have. And never once did they value how nice their car was, how big their house was. Never once. And uh, that always stuck with me. But it's really hard. It's really hard. And I don't know how it is for other guys. It's hard for me. Because I was always a fucking piece of shit. I was a loser. I was a terrible student. I was always the guy that everyone was like, well, just sit in the back of the class and shut up and don't fuck with the kids who are really going to do something with their life. And I will pass you. So just stay out of the way. And I got that message pretty early on. And then I was a very desperate drug addict and alcoholic. And I envisioned my life as being a, 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 a loser, you know, in the eyes of society, a traditional loser. So that, so when I got a taste of like, well, no, no, I can put a, a nice life together. I can make a great career. I can have stuff. I became so goddamn desperately attached to that idea. That's really hard for me to, to let that go and, and, and re, reassess what I value because I, I'm just so consumed with the idea of not being that, that loser, you know? Yeah. I think that's one of the gifts psychedelics gave me was the, the rewiring of how, how I identify, not just with myself, but with, with the track that I've been on, mm -hmm. right? Like fighting for me wasn't just about 
trying to become a world champion or trying to be the best version of myself or keeping me clean because I, I'm, I, you know, I definitely, I wasn't an addict per se, but I certainly had all of those qualities. Yeah. Right. And I've, I've been to countless meetings with family members for AA and shit like that. And they're like, oh yeah, when are you going to hit rock bottom? You know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when's it coming? Fuck off. Uh, but I, but I understood those things and, and fighting gave me that doorway to want to take care of myself. So letting go of that, I wasn't just letting go of the opportunity to become a champion or to fight the best in the world or to look at myself as a fighter, right? This idea of, you know, when I go out and tell people what I do for a living, it's, oh, I fight in the fucking highest organization of, of the game. Yeah. You know, it's like saying you play in the NFL. I didn't play arena ball. I played in the NFL right. when it comes to fighting, right? To surrender that was one layer, but to surrender the thing that was my guidepost to take care of myself, that was the biggest if. And really what ayahuasca was showing me was that I didn't need to have a fight on the schedule to want to take care of myself. And I actually lived the experience because I had a very, um, had a very polarity, you know, du dualistic uh, life when I fought. I would be perfect in fight camp for eight weeks, no TV, reading books, meditating every day, eating 100% organic, going to bed on time, fight night happens, win or lose, fucking blow, yeah. <laughs> shoving ecstasy in my ass, eating big Whoppers or Big Macs. It was just like all bets are off. And that would extend for two or three weeks, sometimes a little longer. And then I'd slowly start to make my way back to getting in, in, the, in shape, you know, heading into camp. And I did that my entire career. And so the experience was I got to relive that. And every time, you know, on ayahuasca, it's very visceral. And I would feel into how my body felt out of camp and fucking throw up violently. I purged a lot. Yeah. And then I would oscillate back into how I'd feel in camp. The clarity, everything on every level, the mental clarity, the feeling of connection, and, um, and the peace inside. And then it would slowly reverse to now it's party time, you know, and, and I did that enough to where it finally stuck with me. And I didn't drink for probably close to two years after that. Um, now, you know, I'll have a couple glasses of wine or something like that. It's no big deal. It's right. different. It just, it just changed something in me. But the reason I bring that up is one of the greatest gifts that plant medicines gave me is a pretty common trait, you know, um, uh, Michael Pollan talked about this and how to change your mind, the brain, how the brain's neurochemistry or neuro, uh, pathways work is similar to, you know, a, a mountain that has many hard lines put through it from people continuing to go down the same path, the same path, the same path. And even if you want to take a different path, you oftentimes will find yourself back on that route that everyone else has been on because it's just ingrained into the snow. And what psychedelics can potentially do for the brain itself is, is actually lay fresh powder down so you can select where you want to go now. Right. Right. And I think that that's such a, a beautiful way to put it because that's certainly been the case for me and for many, many, many other people when used in the right set and setting with the right context. But, um, it's that ability to fully die to the past and live presently. Like, let me, okay, I'll acknowledge and live through that and understand that it brought me here, and then let's set a new directory, a new course, and let go of that thing that I've been clinging to as a guidepost going forward. Right. Right. So if there's any clinging, and I'm not just saying this for you, but for anybody else, like the, the clinging of identity, of 
accomplishment or status or who you are as a provider, who you are in your own home, um, all of those things can be shifted in a way pretty fucking rapidly. Yeah. I, I, one thing that I, I really do admire about you, um, and I'd love to know if this was something that was natural, if it, you were raised that way, or if this is something that you discovered maybe even with um, psychedelics and plant medicine. But, you know, when you look at, like, masculine, feminine energy, you're, like, the archetypical man's man. I mean, you're this big, muscular, handsome, dominant, professional fighter guy who could trash every guy in the room. But more so than most anybody I know, I, I mean this, I mean, maybe, you know, Jason Ellis is really good about this, too. But you're very... Um, expressive lovingly like you're very um it, 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 the energy about you um you're very fearless with like expressing love to another guy um and uh it's very admirable because i think a lot of guys would like to do that but you're you know i don't know if it's like latent homophobia or if it's just the fact that we're not really raised that way to like hug and be touchy-feely loving um especially with with other dudes you you have a very real and a very uh, appealing sense about you when it comes to that stuff. You know, you give you, you don't mind you know, giving a guy a big hug and like you're 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 very in tune when you listen. Um, and that's you know I think traditionally looked at as like a feminine quality. And I, I wonder it, it, was that something that came naturally to you or did you develop that over time? Both. You know my my parents. I had all the all the not all, but many challenges growing up with my family. They were like two, two, uh, two rams constantly. No one backed down. No one yeah. could apologize until it was too late. And, you know, not super violent physically, but super violent verbally, you mm -hmm. know. And that, that affected both me and my sister pretty, pretty strongly. And uh, it got better when they got divorced when I was 13. But that was the imprint psychologically that they gave us. At the same time... Uh, paradoxically, they, I never didn't know that they loved us. Mm -hmm. They always told us they loved us and they showed that affectionately with physical touch. You know, my, my, I remember getting, I had growing pains. My dad would always come in with ice packs and massage my legs long into the night until I fell asleep. Um, so from, and I wrestled my dad since I was a little kid, you know, <laughs> I could climb on his back and that was the way we played. That's the way he played with his uncle, not, not with his dad, but, um, so touch, you know, and that's one of the five love languages, right? Touch was my parents, that's me and my wife, that's bear and wolf. Like that's all of us share that as at least, if not number one, it's number two out of these five love languages for us. So touch has always been there for us and for myself in particular. And that, you know, growing up in the Bay Area, it's, it, it always stuck out to me. I think I was three or four and I saw two dudes kissing and I was like, Hey, why were, uh, that's strange. I mean, these guys were like fucking French kid, full yeah. on, like in, in the Castro, just fucking going after it. And I was like, well, what? I thought that boys only kissed girls. And my dad was like, no, some, some guys, um, some guys kiss guys. Some yeah. guys are attracted to guys and that's okay. And I was like, oh, okay. And that was it. That's the end. That was the fucking yes. end of it. Right. Like there was no argument there. There was no like. Oh, but why? It was like, oh, okay. I just understood it, you know? So I understood it from a young age. And um, as I grew up 
And, you know, the bait, we had a lot of diversity and a lot of, I mean, the school I went to, Monta Vista, I think had 70% um, Asians at it. We had only one African-American, but I played a lot, football with a lot of African-Americans and Mexican kids prior to that in Pop Warner. So I was used to being around different people. But there was always that sticking point. It didn't make, people were cool if you were from fucking Korea, if you were from Africa, like, and I'm not saying African-American. I mean, like, you're actually from Literally Africa. from Africa, yeah. Yeah. Everyone's cool with that. And still people were fucking weird about the gay thing. Sure. Even being in the Bay Area, yeah. right? And it was like, this is, this is something that is not, it just doesn't, it feels fucking so off culturally. And that was one of the huge, the biggest sticking points for me with Christianity, was that someone, A, that hell could even exist, like eternal separation from God. If God is perfect, then how, you know, is there a mistake made then? Mm. You know, especially meeting people who, many of which believed that they were born that way, that they had always had that attraction. From the youngest ages, they looked back, always been attracted to the same sex. Well, growing up in, in the area you did, because I had a very similar situation, white Anglo-Saxon was by far the minority in my high school. I mean, it was mostly Hispanic and, and a huge, huge Asian population, you know, in, in Los, east side of Los Angeles, where I grew up. And um, <laughs> it, was, it was really odd because I, like you, was exposed to homosexuality at a very young age, and it was normalized. It was nothing. But I also, like, we knew the kids in our class that were gay guys in like second grade we knew the dudes who were gay and I, I i've always yeah i never got the whole like well you can cult i'm sure there's people who like they're going through stuff in their life and they're confused and they think like maybe this is the thing but i think by and large gay and lesbianism is is something you're born with you know because it was very clear for most of the kids in my class that were that ended up being you know a, a gay or lesbian adults like we knew, like, pretty early on, you know? One of my cousin's kids always played with dolls. Yeah. He, he, wanted the, he wanted the Barbies. He didn't give a shit about G.I. Joe's or any of that stuff. Yeah. And dyed his hair pink and different things like that. And it was like, there was, it was just not, it's, what, there was no surprises. So, like, when he finally came out, and I was like, how is anyone surprised about this? Like, there, what, what, what planet are we on? Did you just ignore it? Did you have a dream of something else or grandkids or like, I just, it just fucking blew me away. Um, and it was, I mean, it's, it's not, I don't want to put, paint that as a picture of like, he wasn't welcomed with it or anything like that. I just want to say that it, it was like, that, what, why is there confusion around yeah, this? Yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like there should be no confusion here. I bring that up because that was always something that, that I felt you know, from a human rights perspective was pretty fucking important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even in my last fight, I wore the legalized gay trunks at the weigh-ins, bent over, grabbed my ankles and slapped my ass, you know, to the fucking crowd. Like, yeah, this is it. You know, <laughs> this is in front of a community that's, I'll put it this way. When I fought in King of the Cage, I had uh, some, some hot pink Muay Thai trunks and I was wearing them underneath my ASU warm gear, which I always used to get warm in. And so I'm walking out and it was in Lacta Flambeau, Wisconsin, not putting Lacta Flambeau down, but we go out to Lacta Flambeau, Wisconsin for a King of the Cage fight. And uh, everybody's like, King's boo, King's boo, the whole crowd. And I'm like, holy shit, dude, I'm a fucking favorite here. I've yeah. never been to Wisconsin. This is cool. People know they're going crazy. And I'm coming out and I'm throwing up the, the, the pitchfork and I get to the cage and I pull my warmups off and I have my hot pink Muay Thai trunks on. 
and it turns in an instant. Beat that faggot! And I was, I mean, I was irate. I'm not even gay, but I was just like fucking, I could feel the weight of what it must have been like. Yeah. Just in an instant, I understood, right? Like that type of, the type of hate, really, for no no other fucking word, right? And it was just like, I fucking, oh man, it lit me on fire. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't picture UFC fans as, as King of the Cage fans, but maybe they were fans of all, all forms of the sport. And anywho, though, it just stuck with me, you know, and that's something that I wanted to, I wanted to do, you know, all that to say, when it comes to touching a man and showing affection and showing love, if there's something in the way of that, that's just an idea. Yeah. It's just an idea. And it's likely has to do with how you were programmed as a kid. And that programming could have been from a parent, could have been from a school teacher, it could have been from society itself, but it's just a program. Yeah. And and if we are here to to know thyself, how would I know thyself in the highest form? I would know thyself as love. I would know thyself as God is love. And to embody that love, I'm going to show it every fucking way I can, right? right? And I'll show that through touch, I'll show that through my words, I'll show that through my deeds. And I think that's an important piece to understand is that I can't leave something on the table um, and not utilize that gift. We have bodies utilize the gift, right? There, there was a, one of my favorite uh, quotes, and I forget who it was, but they said that gratitude, gratitude not given is like a, a, a present that you gift wrapped and you didn't hand to the person, mm. right? So like when I see you or I see, you know, Ellis, dude, fucking love Ellis. Yeah, when I see him, I'm like... I can't, I, I can't help myself but to run over and want to squeeze him. Yeah. You know, like, like, yeah, I'm going to fucking, I'm going to do that. Even people that are a little bit off with touch, like I don't want to be the hyper aggressive dude. Obviously I have the meat suit that, that follows that might be triggering to some people, but I want to go over and give him a hug and a kiss period. You know, that's, that's how I show love. And, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's an important piece to not leave on the table. You don't, I don't want to have that gift and not give that. Because yeah. when we hold one another, there can be no doubt, no matter where you stand on, on your thoughts around COVID, everyone has been impacted by the inability to touch one another. Everyone has sure. been impacted through lockdown. And that's probably one of the biggest things, especially with kids wearing masks at school, not seeing a smile, not seeing facial expression, which is one of the ways we under, likely understand more about somebody and the words that they're saying than the words themselves. All of those things matter. And it's, you know, it's not what you say, it's how you say it, right? So, and how you say that through touch is a big piece. And uh, yeah, even just like you said, I mean, I mean, touch being really that ultimate expression, but even not being able to look at someone in the eyes and see their expression I, I worry about uh, that, that impact because, um, you know, I just think back on my own experience. Uh, uh, I was a jock too, and I came from like a, a you know, a typical masculine world. So busting balls was part of the deal. You fuck with your friends. That's what you do. But then there was also the times, like any other kid, I'm ashamed to admit it, where I was trying to fuck with someone, hurt their feelings or something, you know? And... Uh, You'd do it, you'd do it, and someone would would let it just glide off their back. But then every once in a while, you know, you're in fourth grade, and you're like, hey, you fucking pussy, baby. And you look at the kid, and you're like, oh, man, I just really hurt his feelings. And uh, 
you know, again, I'm ashamed to admit that, you know, I did that you know, a handful of times. But when that happened, I'm like, oh, oh, that's I don't feel very good right now. And like, I'm going to go over and say, like, wow, I'm, I'm sorry, dude, I didn't mean to get you because you I saw I visually and and my all of my senses could could understand that, like, I, I, I actually made that person feel bad and I don't feel good about that. I feel bad about that. Uh, so I'm going to make amends, hopefully. When you have someone's face covered, or even worse, when you're typing that to someone that you don't <laughs> even know, and you're just doing it to a pre-recorded video or picture, uh, that just goes on ad nauseum. You don't get that feedback of like, well, you know, uh, trolling's fun, busting balls is fun. I'm, I'm not trying to be that guy. But you have to understand that there's a difference between that and and there are things that are said and 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 expressed that that do hurt people and that's something that we should recognize and not do you know but I don't think you get that feedback in this kind of divorced world that we're in you know yeah Doug, Douglas Murray wrote the book The Madness of Crowds it was one of my favorite books yeah my wife loves it in uh, 2020 and. Um, he really, he really dives into that, you know, what's happening online and, and, you know, how we behave in crowds, like pack dogs and shit like that. And I, I certainly was on both sides of the fence as a bully. Bullied big time growing up. I was always way taller than the kids in my grade. So older kids that thought I was in their class, you know, would pick on me and shit like that. And then when I got to be older, I picked on kids and never physically, but definitely verbally uh just chewed, chewed kids up verbally. And, you know, having spent time on both sides of that coin, I think it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about people. It taught me a lot about what, what is the way I want to direct it now? You know, like that it's, again, everything circling back to now. If we have an understanding of, of these things in the past, the, the greater we get into our own awareness, the greater we get into an, an active and ready response of how this makes me feel in the moment. And, Anytime you pull up your phone, if you see something where somebody's just going after you, like my wife and I did open relationship for a year and a half, and there's a podcast that still remains on YouTube, and I still get emailed the YouTube comments, you know, and mm-hmm. it's like, oh, Kyle the C- Kingsbury or any of this shit, you know, and it's like, for a long time, I would, I would feel, I would absorb that, and the feeling is a contracting feeling, like a, ah, uh, like I close off, you know, yeah. and, um, and then on the opposite side of that, Somebody, you know, listens to a good one and they're like, dude, I totally changed X, Y, and Z. Thank you for this. You know, and it's like an expansive, like, oh, okay, there's an opening there. Well, you can learn from both. You know what I'm saying? And I can feel into both. And that can be a great compass in how I direct going forward. And I've thought many times about taking that podcast down just for the sake of like not having to deal with it. And then I was like, no, eventually this isn't going to bother me. And it doesn't now. I still get comments being a cuck and shit like that. And it's just like, you know, and it's like, oh yeah, that's okay. There's still that in the world. Um, and it's important to recognize that as like a meter of like, oh yeah, we're, we're still, there's still people being directed by the programs they're under and that's totally okay. Yeah. You know, but for those that are obviously listening on podcasts like this, there's some level of self-awareness to say, oh, it can be better. I can do X, Y, and Z. I can change this. I am the director not just the actor of my own movie. You know? Yeah, you you really are the narrator to your own story, and like we're so I'm guilty of it. Um, I, I've improved a lot, but I'm guilty of just like being so fucking mean to myself. You know, like the and 
it only makes sense that people would then act out and be mean to other people because I, I nothing I do is good enough. I, I'm, you know, no one likes me. That 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 conversation happens, you know, so often. Um, is is it hard? Um, I'm sure. I, I'm genuinely sure that you do a great job with it. But I only have a daughter, so I don't know what it's like to raise a young man in this world and to try to really do your due diligence to apply positive masculine qualities without letting it spill over into what is looked at as toxic masculinity, you know? Um, and I think that term probably gets used a little bit too much, but at the same time, it's very real, you know, the bully, the, the loud mouth, the misogynist, there is the, 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 over-exaggeration of masculine energy. Um, especially I would, I would call it unconscious versus conscious, mm. you know, okay. light versus shadow. And if you look at it through those terms and for people that want to know more about anything male related, which is important for women too, uh, King Warrior Magician Lover by Robert Moore is one of my favorite all time books that really dives into this and dives into the benefits of feminism and kind of how it's shaped, you know, men not fully recognizing the positive aspects of the masculine. Hmm not knowing how to be in the world as a man. Um, and, and, and really cuts through all the noise. You know, I, I still get something that never, that always made me laugh and never like gave me that contracted feeling was people that would be like you Rogan and all these assholes that think that kicking a heavy bag and shooting of, you know, some fucking helpless deer makes you more of a man. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you know, like there's always going to be that maybe not always, but that is the, the product of men not under, and I'm not saying all men should do martial arts and go hunting, but a lot of you and men or women will recognize and learn a lot about themselves in martial arts and in hunting. Mm -hmm. You will have a stronger connection to your food. You will have a deeper relationship with the sacred hoop. You will respect the life of that animal that you eat no matter what you're eating. And, uh, martial arts will, especially the ones that, that have, um, you know, built-in feedback loops like jujitsu, where you're going to be tested on a daily basis, you will start to learn a lot about yourself and what makes you tick. Submitting to another person yeah. um, is that that encapsulates humility. I mean, yeah. that makes you humble, you know, mm-hmm. to have someone, especially a lot of times, the crazy thing about jujitsu for me was that um, I'm nowhere near as, as big and strong as you are, but oftentimes I'm rolling with guys that I'm bigger and stronger than. And they twist me into a fucking knot. And that makes you go, you leave that, that academy and you're just like, I'm not going to fight with someone in traffic. I'm not going <laughs> to yell at my wife. I've just been completely decimated by a 135-pound, you know, like 16-year-old, you know, because yeah. he's a black belt and I'm shitty. Um, th- th- that's a very, very uh, enlightening experience. Yeah, it is, 100%. And so when I, when I, when I think of Bear and I think of the things that I provide for him as a father and as a man. Number one, I don't direct his life. I think, you know, our children are our teachers. And if we treat them that way, it's a totally different thing than you're going to be a lawyer. You're going to be a doctor. I give a shit about, you know, what grades you get in the fucking indoctrination program called mm-hmm. school. Yeah. None of that. Um, it's my job to, to provide him tools and experiences that will allow him to teach and learn. And, some of those experiences are going to include martial arts. Some of them will include hunting. Some of them will include um, 
trips to the Amazon. You know, like we re- we read the Harry Potters, and I, he was like, "Does Hogwarts really exist?" And I'm like, "Yeah, it doesn't pretty darn close." Does in the Amazon, buddy? Yeah. There's real magic out there. Um, when the time is right, he'll cross those thresholds and he'll go through those experiences and learn these things for himself through experience. And it's 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 more for me to let go of whatever he's to become and to simply aid him in the best practices that will help him to know himself. Mm -hmm. And I think with that, uh, that aspect of submitting or surrendering to the soul that he is to, to whoever, whichever person he elects to be and, and change and, and watch that change and just be there to hold and support him through all that. Um, and all that said, Parenting, as you know, is the most fucking challenging thing ever. I had to revisit so much of the way I was disciplined from a completely different angle. Like I, I, I got out of the house like most people did all the bad drugs, finally stopped numbing, you know, had fighting and plant medicine and started reliving a lot of those experiences and healing from it. And then now I was put in the same position where I have to discipline. And if I do no discipline, that's a disservice. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's so much. I mean, and uh, Soul of Discipline, I always recommend to parents. It's a fucking amazing book by Kim Jong Payne. And um, my point is, I still fuck up. I still overreact. And how quick I am to forgive myself in the overreaction or the knee jerk response of behaving in a way that was similar to the way I was raised, which I don't want to do at all costs. And at the same time, paradoxically recognizing that something more than a quiet conversation is necessary to redirect energy to prevent, you know, for example, all kids are going to argue with one another, no matter how close they are in age. So we thought child spacing will be great. We'll have a little bit more time. There'll be less jealousy. Not the case (laughs) (laughs) for five years. Bear was the only show in town, you know, and now we've got a one-year-old little girl and, um, there's some times where he's a little, he's gets really frustrated and he gets super aggressive and it's like the year he's like a 65 pound fucking ball of muscle, you know? So like the, the action has to be swift and it has to be direct and enough to shut down any possibility of our baby getting hurt. Right. You know? And, and from that, after, after something like that, there's usually a, Oh fuck dude, did I, did I do too much or did I, you know, like, and, and that reflection though is important because Therein lies the gift of understanding a better way going forward. Yeah. You know, even when I slip up and I do it the exact same way my dad did to me, um, there's always a benefit to that. And I can get to that benefit sooner. The sooner I forgive myself, the sooner I find, you know, I can release whatever poor feelings I have about that and acknowledge it and then just move forward with it and, and come to a deeper understanding with bear through conversation. Thankfully he's old enough. You it know? circles back to that thing we started talking about. Um, you know, that, that self-analysis, that fearless self-analysis. It's like, not only did you do a, B or C fine. Do you have the balls to go back and look at it and see like, well, where did I feel like I was misguided? Where did I overreact? Where did I under, underreact? And that, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's really like a big chunk of it is just having the guts to not pretend like it didn't happen, you know, yeah. and just move on. Um, it, I'll, I'll, I'll let you get about your day. And I, I, again, I just appreciate it so deeply, man. This has been such a great conversation, but the, the fit for service program that you're putting together, I, I think encapsulates a lot of these things that we were discussing. Uh, a kind of give me some backstory 
on what it's about and B, let people know if they wanted to get involved, what, what they could do. Yeah, so Aubrey was out at uh, Don Howard's uh, spot in Peru, Spirit Quest, working with Wachuma, and he had a, a super clear vision on forming a community uh, in which he and a handful of people would cultivate and teach all of the best practices that they've spent their lifetimes working on. You know, And uh, it became very clear. He came back. He talked with us about it. He invited me and Eric Godsey and Caitlin Howe. And now his wife, Vailana Marcus, who's just fucking incredible, uh, to all be a part of it as, as permanent coaches with him. And then, you know, we bring in three times a year we have meetups, but we work with people throughout the year with uh, weekly coaching calls and things like that. And we're just, we offer the tools that have shifted our lives, you know, and we take people through different themes. So this year's theme has been the divine feminine, the divine masculine, and then sacred union. And that can sound really airy fairy to bros, you know, that are listening to this, but to understand what it, what is inherently our femininity is to understand how we listen. It's to understand how we cultivate peace and receptivity and to understand our masculinity is to understand how we do, how, how, what is right action? Mm. What is the way that I operate in the world? Uh, and that looks different for everybody. There's no one size fits all, but then we curate these experiences once per trimester that are, um, I mean, we're, shit, we start tomorrow for, for trimester two here in Austin. So I'm super pumped about that. But experiences are always different. We take people through transformative experiences. We'd love to to, <laughs> to bring in the curanderos and actually sit with the medicine. But obviously that is not legal. So we take people through the legal practices um, that work. You know, we've, we've done holotropic breath work or shamanic breath work with Anahata as a guide out in Sedona. And that is fucking psychedelic. That is an altered state of consciousness. And many other experiences, you know, from having musicians play like Porangi to, uh, we have Charles Eisenstein who wrote the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible, sacred economics, the ascent of humanity. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. He's going to be speaking at this event. Satsang will be performing in Q is going to do a poetry workshop. So, I mean, we cover a lot, uh, of ground over the course of these five days. And then we just get into the next trimester and year by year, this goes on. Some people stay, uh, multiple years. Some people stay for a trimester and leave, but in any regard, um, it's a community, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a thing that's beyond, um, the sum total of its parts. You know, we have so much more in this container and it's so much more than Aubrey ever dreamed of or me or anyone else for that matter that it's become and becoming. And I think that's, um, it's been a really, really cool thing to watch and see grow. You know, we're in our third year and next year, uh, we're, you know, we're running it back every year, but watching this grow and seeing what's come of that, you know, there's like, yeah, businesses form and shit like that between people in the group. And you're like, ah, oh, cool. You know, <laughs> you're on, I mean, it is cool to see somebody step from a day job into their vocation. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Right. That, that's, sure. some, that's, that's juicy. That actually matters. Right. But we now have uh, our first marriages that have come from people that met in the group and our nice. first children that have come from those marriages. That's pretty fucking rad yeah. that you would meet your partner that you're going to have kids with in this group. And, and, and I think of things like that, you know, and that's, that's the unquantifiable. I mean, we could count how many of those we have and quantify it, but it's unquantifiable. And that's um, really at a time where people 
feel without connection, feel without tribe, feel without like-minded people or, you know, I live uh, in fucking Bangladesh. There's no one around. I live out in the sticks in Turlock, California, you know, and I don't know anybody near me that's into this stuff. And it's, it's a way where we can bring people together where they don't, they know they're not alone. They see that they've got so many others like them, all each on their individual part of the path. Some have figured out certain things, but have other pieces they're working on. And, and that community holds one another. And it's a fucking really cool thing to be a part of. You know, I've learned a lot and grown a lot just as a coach in it. And, um, you know, one of the questions they have for me usually is like, oh, what's your favorite part of being a coach in this? And it's like, it's that I learn mm-hmm. so much. Right. You know, I have the impetus to learn like fighting gave me. I want to learn so I can teach, but also I learn from the act of coaching. And that's a, that's a really powerful and beautiful gift that I get from it. Yeah, it, it sounds beautiful. I mean, much like you learn, like you were saying, you learn from your child mm-hmm. more so than you impart this, the knowledge. It actually teaches you a lot about yourself and it, it helps you grow. Um, it really is beautiful. And I, I think that one of the overlooked aspects of it and it, with the fit for service is um, the sense of community, real sense of community. I'm not a religious person per se, but I do think that as we push to become a more secular country, which I think in a, in a, in a technical sense, I, I think is probably good. You know, the separation of church and state is something that we should really analyze and appreciate. But at the same time, church provided people a real sense of coming together with one positive purpose that so many people in this country are now lacking. You know, that, that idea of coming together and to, to worship for spirituality, the common good. Um, again, how organized religion has acted that out has been misguided in many ways. But at the same time, there is still tremendous value in that, in that grouping of together and a sense of uh, uh, a voluntary community not just people that you happen to live next to you're choosing to come together for this guided p- purpose. Um, it really is beautiful and it's, and it can become so meaningful. And I think, you know, it's just so overlooked and, and not valued enough. Um, but, uh, honestly to sum things up, I, I, I can't express properly how much it means to me for you again, to offer to do this with me out here in your hometown. And, uh, you know, I was kind of fly by night, like, uh, let's set it up. Not only did you do that, you let me use some of your equipment and you gave me an amazing conversation and uh, it just goes to show the type of person you are and I genuinely appreciate it, dude. Thank you, brother. Thank you. What did I tell you? The guy's amazing. He really is. I am so uh, fortunate to have him in my life. Again, it's kingsboo.com, K-I-N-G-S-B-U.com for all the information for Kyle and of course you could check him out at onit.com where he is the host of the Onit podcast. Um, thank you to Blue Chew. Thank you to Bet Online. Thank you to all my sponsors. My Patreon is available if you would like more in-depth help and information when it comes to getting your shit together. Because I will be very honest with you, I'm always working at getting my shit together. It is a work in progress. It is a never-ending project, but it can be a whole lot of fun. Um, and in this crazy mixed-up world that makes you think that nobody cares, remember, I do. Be good, people. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. Our house is a mess. Come on. 
Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.